This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. Five. Check for sound. Four. It's showtime. Three. Let's two, go. One. You're listening to the Pro Audio Suite, a program for audio and voiceover professionals. And welcome to another Pro Audio Suite. This week we're talking with Eric Bazilian. You would know him from the band The Hooters and also the guy who penned the song One of Us, which became a mega hit for Joan Osborne. That's later in the show. But for now, we're all here. We've got uh, Robbo. Hello. We've got Robert. And we have George and myself. Hello. (laughs) Who's Um, myself? I haven't met him. Oh, yeah, that's my pseudonym. I just don't want to be, because uh, I, I got threatened last week, you know, right. nailed down the tyres, <laughs> killed the dog, threatened my children, so I'm going to be myself from now on and right. move. Nice. So I've moved to a new, new suburb. <laughs> is, is, is that how you actually lost your tyre? <laughs> no, there was actually a nail gun, a nail in my tyre, which was really annoying because when I turned up at the tyre repair place, the guy goes, you know, oh, mate, you got a second, I just want to show you something. Um... The, the nail's a bit close to the edge and I can't get the grinder in there to smooth it out to put the patch on. And I said, well, can't you put one of those plugs in? They normally put a rubber plug thing. Mm. No, you can't put them that close to the edge. And it's still, it still seems to be leaking. It's bubbling. I'm like... I'm in the exact same situation. Really? I kid you not. And I'm so frustrated because like, like you, I believe you said you had not many miles on these tires. I don't know, but I, I only had a maybe a thousand miles on my new tires and I got a nail in that exact same spot. Uh, it's like on the, sh- it's just barely on the shoulder. That's the one. won't fix it. And I'm so frustrated that I'm, and I'm so cheap that I, <laughs> that I <laughs> pump my darn tire up every time I get gas at this point, because it got, it goes flat that fast. It's nuts. So, well, mine, mine doesn't see, it doesn't seem to be going flat at this point, but I do have a uh, pump that I carry in the back of the car, which plugs in, you know, the electric <laughs> just, pump. Just spray a bunch of fix-a-flat in it. Oh, uh, no, know. because, yeah, but then, oh, mate, you wouldn't want to do that because the, when they try and get that tire off, when it does have to be changed, it's bloody awful. It's a mess. Yeah. Really a mess. So anyway, so I had the coffee machine blow up. The, it blew the circuit board in the, in the house. The fridge went haywire. Oh, no. And then, <laughs> so I'm like, oh, what else could go wrong? What's that in my tire? Oh, no. (laughs) Wait till all those components are smart and all have Wi-Fi. Yeah. You think it's bad now? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. When they start talking to each other, let's all break down now. And they do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hearing you talking about Li-Fi, I'm working on a podcast for Telstra, which is like our big telco here. Do you know the next big thing is actually going to be Li-Fi? So not over over wireless, but by light, transmitted by light. Really? Yeah. That'll wow. be the next big thing. Li-Fi, more secure and obviously heaps faster. So, yeah. But line of sight, obviously. Well, I don't know. That's the interesting thing. I haven't, we haven't delved that far into the interviews that, I'm put, that we're putting together for this podcast. But um, yeah, light is the next big, next big thing, apparently. Well, yeah, but that, that's already over done fiber that. optics? Like, light has been the thing. No, no, as, as, as to replace Wi-Fi. So to replace your wireless connection, instead of using, instead of using uh, you know, essentially RF. RF, yeah, it'll be using light. So laser beams. I don't know. I, I don't know exactly how it works. Once we've finished the series, I'll let you know because I'll be hearing more about it in a couple of weeks' time when we do yeah, some more interviews. Yeah, this is definitely but, um, new territory, yeah. right? Because yeah, because here, 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 here is the the overall thing. Li-Fi is a high-speed bidirectional networked and mobile communications data 
using light. Li-Fi comprises multiple light bulbs that form a wireless network offering a substantially similar experience to Wi-Fi, except using the light spectrum. There you go. Interesting. So does that mean that it's going to be safer than Wi-Fi, as in health issues? You just get a different cancer. You just get a different okay. cancer. That's right. You get skin cancer get instead. That's right. Yes. But you, look good. <laughs> yeah. but you get a sunburn and you. then you get cancer from the sunburn. So it's not directly related. <laughs> oh, well, that sounds better then. At least you look healthy. Yeah. You can absolutely. put some sunscreen on your device and then it will be protected from the network. <laughs> yeah, it's not a firewall. That's right. It's just, yeah, so yeah. just go down to Coles and buy a, buy a 15 plus and away you go. Yeah. Which would be Walmart, really by don't the way. Want my, my kid's surfing the internet anymore and put some, put yeah. some zinc oxide over the uh, optical yeah, port. Don't go surfing the internet without block out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Slip, slap, slap. You might. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So that's obviously going to affect us at some point. Yeah. Well, the other interesting thing that came out of this from this podcast for me was we were talking about before that we started recording was I got to use a Zoom recorder for the first time the other night. I had to go and do some pickups for this interview and uh, the guy who's the host was flying out to New York the next day, so the only time to do it was on, on Wednesday night. So um, I grabbed a mate's Zoom recorder and my trusty old 416 and ran and found a quiet place in the, um, the office building where he was actually doing a presentation that night and um, dropped down a few pickup lines. But they're very handy, those little Zoom recorder things. Have you guys had any experience with those? Mm-hmm. I've, I've used one here and there. Like yeah. Is it the 4, the 4N, the H? Yeah, the 4N. The Sorry, or? yeah, the, the H4N. So, um, yeah. Yeah, really nice. Really nice. I was Because mm-hmm. usually I grab the uh, the laptop in the inbox and that's, you know, yeah. because that's what I have lying around. And I thought, you know what, I can't be bothered. I know my mate's got the Zoom recorder. I'll borrow it. And um, I thought you'd yeah, have the Nagra. Awesome. The Nagra? Why would you think Those that? are like eight grand. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Go ahead, Robbo. You're so although, cheap. <laughs> although um, sound, sound devices came out with a new three-channel uh, interface recorder. And yeah. apparently it has a standalone function where it can play the tracks back and you can punch in, although they charge like an extra hundred bucks for that. But that's kind of a neat thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, the, st- the sound device stuff is, they've come out with some really cool little price competitive products that um, it's I mean, a it's USB interface and a recorder all in one unit. And, and a really good mic preamps. And good mic preamps and onboard DSP and, you know, and, 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 you know, it's got just lots of cool stuff. I, I, I saw it in person at NAM last year, or actually NAB, and I uh, was very, very, very impressed with it. Only trouble is if, if it goes wrong, you lose everything. Yeah, well, I mean, sound devices, their their lineage is stuff for live, their stuff's yeah, for, for film production yeah. mixing. So, and like, like their things actually offer, like their higher end ones offer the ability to record at two pads at the same time. Yeah, that's true. The, the, that's These are really more prosumery. This pro- pro- product you're talking about is called the Mix 3 and the Mix yeah. 6. Because most um, of their stuff is like, you know, $1,500, $2,000. Right. This is like $500, $700. And it's, it's, still it's a up sweet there, spot but... between a Zoom or a Tascam and a Nagra. Right. Or one of those other extremely expensive production, you know, a Diva or something. Yeah. And these are falling a really good middle ground in terms of build quality and all that good stuff. But the Zooms are great. I love those little products. I have a Tascam DR40 that's really their take on that Zoom yeah. 4. Mm-hmm. I had an M-Audio uh, thing that was like that. Yeah. And, and it had 
four channel and you could get two X or two quarter inches that were balanced into it. Yeah. Yeah. Mine, mine will record the stereo mic on board and then the two quarter or the two XLRs on four tracks total. So you could do like two ISO mics or two, you know, ISO mics and then a stereo pair for the room or something. So um, pretty slick little thing. I mean, sometimes you want a handheld device that's built to do a single job. Um, they're always going to be more reliable, in my opinion, than recording to any computer. They're just, they have a dedicated Except, except job. for Boom Recorder. You talked about how stable Reaper is. Oh, I uh, used that years ago. I love Boom Recorder. Right. It's like this guy in Denmark, it's like, it does all the time code stuff. It has the pre-record function. So when you're late on the record button, it was already recording. That's right. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's just stupid stable on a Mac. I mean... Every screen sharing app you you have can come on. It doesn't matter. This thing just like once it's set recording, that's all it does. It records. It doesn't even play back. Right. And it's got very good meters. Has a specific job. How does it do that yeah. pre-record thing? Does it record like a buffer? Yep, it has a buffer. You see it spinning in red, and then when you when you hit record, the the buffer closes up, and then you keep on going. So you get like, you know, five seconds if you're. I, I'm, I'm flashing back when I was still a sound mixer. I used it for a few shows and. Uh, yeah, it was rock solid. I mean, I knew sound mixers that were bringing around Mac minis on their cart. My kit. And just running that. My my remote record kit is a, or one of, I got many, but one of them that I've used a lot actually because it was so easy to run and gun with and it was lightweight was a, still have it running, a Mac G4 laptop running Boom Recorder, running an M-Audio 1418. So you get eight inputs there with a mic preamp and then a Behringer, the eight channel preamps that go to optical. So there's 16 inputs into Boom Recorder on a G4. Never failed me. G4. That's going G4. back away. Yeah, yeah, that's going like, back. Going lot. back to like 2004. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, way totally back. just boom, chords. But it goes no back problem. to what we talked about last episode, isn't it? If it's working, don't fuck with it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's a great kit. It just, you know, it's like purpose built. It's all I use it for. And there you go. And I've cool. got empowered Pro Tools on there too. <laughs> Oh, yeah. that's, right. that's, that's how you do piss off the client because yeah. then you lose the recording yes <laughs> yeah you don't want to do that absolutely mm. so what do you recommend for uh, this one for you George what do you re- recommend as a road kit for uh, someone like me a voice dude who's staying in a hotel somewhere oh man well yeah the the ultimate really still kind of proven device that just throwing your bag with your 416 416 nowadays. Yeah. 416. Yeah. 416. Is, um, I, I did to say that they had a bad batch for a while, but they, they're up, their production quality seems to stabilize. Now would be the Accenturance MicPort Pro. Yep. Um, I'm on one right now. Yeah. I mean, they're in the high $100 range, $200 ish. Um, and I have a couple of them. I've, I, my girlfriend's got one I gave her, and, and they, they're just great little piece of gear. Very, very light. I think. For our industry, a slightly better one actually might be the Shure X2U. Yep, that one too. Because it's got the volume, the the blend knob between. It has the a blend. That's right. Yeah. For and, monitoring. And I think also like the MicPort Pro's got the phantom power on the very bottom. It's a little bit cumbersome. Fiddly. Yeah, and the M the Shure is definitely it's. I mean, it's cast metal, but those two, both of those are like all you need. That yeah. and a laptop. Well, I've I bought the uh, well, I didn't actually buy it. I should actually make a disclaimer here that it was given to me by Rode. But I I got the um, AI One, their little um, interface. Who makes it? it? Rode. Oh, okay. 
and it's like I, I, it's rock solid, and uh, it sounds amazing. And the the one of the best things about the thing is the headphone amp because you can actually okay. most of them have got mm-hmm. really low volume, but this thing's got tons. Quarter inch or or a little mini like eight quarter inch? quarter inch. So yeah, that's better right there. They've done yep. some real voodoo on the circuit design to get enough juice out of a five hundred milliamp headphone or USB power supply, you know, to get that. Um, there's a, there's Centrance has also got a new product that's been highly controver- controversial in the, at least in my circles, in the mixer face, um, because they, they did an Indiegogo or not an Indiegogo, but I think it was a Kickstarter for this product at least four years ago. Um, I know a lot of people had sent them money and it's now just now hitting the, hitting the stores. In fact, I see it on a website right here. Um, and it, it takes the Micport Pro and kind of gives it a lot more bells and whistles, really. It's got internal power. It's a recorder. It's got monitor matrix for monitoring left, right, center. You can monitor one or the other in either ear. It does a lot of little extra tricks. But uh, I haven't gotten to use it in, in real life yet. I, I saw it at NAM show. But um, if you want something a little more robust with a few more features and you like that idea of a built-in backup recorder inside the unit, that will record simultaneously. It could be a pretty sweet piece of kit. And it'll record to an iPhone too. Yeah, back up. Yeah, I mean, basically handy. the idea is that it uses the iPhone as the interface. Like, can't you strap your phone to it practically? That was the original model. The original model was designed to be uh, something that you would strap your phone directly to. It even had little rubber straps. So, um, but I think the iPhone size grew so much, it just didn't make any sense anymore. And it was smaller oh, right. than the iPhone. Yeah, that's right. And um, and they've completely changed the form factor of the unit now. It has a completely different design than when it first was designed. It's called the R4 now, the Mixer Face R4. So for three hundred fifty dollars, it's pretty competitive with what else is out there. And if it you know if, it, if its preamps hold up to the Centrance preamp um, quality that they say that they're supposed to have, and what people have experienced, it could be really a really nice piece of gear. Well, we should yeah. do an experiment, Robbo, because I know you're coming down to Melbourne to um, record a few bits and pieces later in the year. Mm. So I should bring some of this stuff along and um, let's do an experiment. That sounds like think. a very fine idea. Yeah, to let's uh, do it. To Phil, Robert and Georgie and I'm doing this Telstra podcast that I'm working on later in the year. They're doing some live conference stuff that they want us to record and turn around into their podcast and they want it turned around overnight. So we're organizing wow. voiceover talent and, you know, obviously recording on site and all that sort of stuff. It's a huge little project. So, um, wow. so that might be interesting to play with. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I you know, I, I really, um, I really like that little AI. I think it's Super, and I also think the, the that Rode NT1 would be great for that kind of stuff sitting in a hotel room. But I, we're mucking around with the idea of using the Chaotica eyeball, which I'm not a huge fan of, but I think mm. in, in a hotel room it could actually um, could actually work, especially with someone who is not going to be happy about sticking their head under a doona. The only thing I'll say about the... Because the, Andrew sent me a file of him recording on the, the Conica eyeball. For me, it sounds like it loses some of the top end. Is that... Oh, yeah. Yeah. It loses it's kind of a filter. chunk of it. It filters out top end and adds back in low end. Mm. So it messes if you, with the yeah. microphone's polar pattern. It really right, does. Right. And that's a good or bad thing. I mean, in general, it's bad. Yeah. And in some cases, it's good. Like I, I have clients that send me their samples recorded with an eyeball regularly. And I always say, send me one with and send me one without. I like to hear it with the eyeball, without. 
and then I'll make a determination. Because if I find if it's an over, already a bright mic with a female talent, then sometimes it really is helpful. Mm. Warms up the mic, takes out some of the top end, re-cues it in a good way. But oftentimes, unfortunately, it is not sonically transparent. As much as they tried, yeah. it is not, not even close. So yeah. got to watch out for that. Yeah, yeah. being used to um, Andrew's really nicely recorded stuff, I listened to the file he sent me and went, Mm, doesn't sound like it came out of your room. <laughs> yeah, well, right. I was, yeah, but it was just worth an experiment to see what it sounded like. Because um, I, I just think, you know, when you, if you do a pillow mountain or a, you know, use a porter booth or something, for someone who's not a voiceover guy, it's going to be really kind of a little bit intimidating, I would imagine, staring at something like that. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Although the, um, the, 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 we're doing the stuff the other night when I went in to meet him. Um, we uh, we actually recorded this, the pickups in a couple of different places just to give me a few options. He was sort of pretty cool with that, so I think um, that might be not so much of an issue. Yeah, nice. Yeah, use the forty one six, the forty one six, the old trusty forty one six, indeed. Or even like an SE, you know, one of the SE shields. What do you think of those, George? Uh, the Reflexion filter. Yeah, um, you know, another innovative product that came out a few years ago. Um, takes a lively room and makes it slightly less lively. That's about all it really does, at least for there's the a, microphone. I think. There's a big difference in the different makes. Like the uh, who's the company? Um, is it SE? Well, everybody's yeah, knocked it off. SE yeah. invented the Rex, They they invented the reflection filter. That's what they call it, the reflection filter. And, and then, some of them have better batting in them that make them actually suck up more than others. Yeah. Um, but generally, yeah, you can you can definitely help a situation with that. They're kind of big and bulky. Yeah, I, I really yeah. find them to be. They're used in the wrong context in most cases in voiceover because people will buy one and just stick it up in their living room or their bedroom and think it's enough. And it never is enough on its own. And so by the time you've bought that thing and then you've done everything else it requires to make the room still sound good, you don't even need it anymore. The the thing about it is this. It's really attacking to some degree the wrong side of the problem because you have to look at what it's trying to do. Is it trying to prevent your voice from getting out to the rest of the room and therefore exciting it, because that I think it can do. A little bit. But then if if what you're trying to do is protect the mic from the room, you're really protecting the backside of the mic anyways. And the place, usually when you're trying to deal with a room, one of the first things you want to deal with is the wall behind you. Right. Not the wall behind your microphone. Right, exactly. So that thing in conjunction with something behind you, like I'll I'll set one up, if that's all they have, I'll say, okay, open up the closet doors to your clothing closet, put that behind you, put the microphone in front of you with this thing behind the mic and together they do a pretty good job. They work together pretty well. You need that big dead absorbing wall behind you, behind your position. And then it works. Okay. Um, Aston microphones, they make the Aston origin. Um, They make a really interesting take on this. Um, It's really cool looking. It's purple, which is fun. It has a little bit more coverage because it kind of curves on the top and the bottom, not just the sides. I've yet to try it in the real world, so I can't really answer to whether how effective it is or not. But um, I've tried the king daddy of them all, though, which is the ISOVOX 2. Um, if you go on YouTube, search for ISOVOX, I-S-O-V-O-X 2. Is that the name, one where you stick your head inside? You put the entire thing over your head. It stands <laughs> yes. on a speaker oh, yeah, stand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw um, that at, at NAM a couple of years ago. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, I got to hand it to the kid that came that up with it. That will do it. Swedish yeah. kid, it's... It, it does kill a lot of reverberant, uh, reverberation. It really makes a super dead chamber. But it's still, much in the way that the eyeball does, it still colors the sound of the mic. 
Yeah. And it's expensive. Um, it's very expensive. It's about a thousand US. You and know, Porta Booth to go or that one has made slightly more affordable versions of the same thing. They don't quite look as nice mm-hmm. as the Isovox. No, the Isovox but, uh, is really well made. Good, good yeah. engineering. Watch my video on YouTube. I, have, I did a review on it for my George the Tech channel, Isovox 2. Um, you know, you can get really get an idea of what it takes to assemble it. I, when I do a review, I don't say, here's the product and this is what it does. I go, here's the product. This is what it's like to get it out of the box. This is what it's like to put the dang thing together, you know, so it's really pretty comprehensive. But you need a big speaker stand, like, I mean, a, you know, a PA speaker stand to put this thing on. It's so heavy. you know. I, I would say that the Isovox is approaching the helmet design of the voiceover suit. <laughs> <laughs> See, we're onto something for sure. Uh, we got to oh, do it. Yeah. We got to get a prototype together, surely. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I reckon Aurelex should, should do this. Aurelex should be should uh, do one of these just for the hell of it and turn up at Nam or something <laughs> with the 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 Aurelex voiceover suit. It'll be sensational. Yes. Oh man! So they will funny. have to use old moon boots from the eighties. <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> there's a there's a company out there that does um, branding for radio stations um, called Benstown Branding. G'day to Andreas if you're listening. Oh, yeah. um, and their their logo is <laughs> their logo is this like this dude in a space suit. <laughs> and I've it always is. pictured their logo would be look exactly what our voiceover suit would look like. <laughs> it is. <laughs> they even have a guy, they even have that mascot suit. They they have pictures of a guy wearing it in the office. They're quite a, quite an entertaining yeah, company. Actually, they do. Yeah. yeah, they're great. They do a really good job. And um, yeah, Andrea yeah. and Andreas Andreas the the guy who owns that is uh, is a really nice guy to boot. So um. Yeah. So, yeah. Now we should get to our interview because uh, I know we've got to shut the door on this show pretty soon. So uh, our interview is with uh, one half of the songwriting team from the band The Hooters, who had hits like "All You Zombies" and "And We Danced" or "And We Danced," if you like. Um, they also were Cindy Lauper's backup band for uh, "She's So Unusual," and uh, Eric also wrote the mega hit um, "One of Us" for Joan Osborne. Uh, he's currently living in Sweden, so let's cross to Stockholm to Eric Bazilian. I should give you a bit of backstory how this all happened. But uh, one of my oldest friends, in fact, my oldest friend, and I'm not saying I hang out with young people. I've actually known him longer than anybody else. Um, in fact, we've known each other since we were three. Wow. He's, He's got a contract in Stockholm. He's working there at the moment, and he's a bit of a guitar nut. And uh, he just happened to be, and it's Robert Simmons. Hello, Robert. I know he's listening. Um, he just happened to be in a guitar store and bumped into our guest. Uh, he, he posted something on Facebook, and I went, oh, that's funny. I interviewed this guy uh, <laughs> back in the 80s. So anyway, cut a long story short, Robert sent me a Facebook link. I then used Messenger, sent the photograph to our guest, and uh, the rest is history. And our guest is Eric Bazilian. How are you, Eric? Just wonderful, thanks. How are you? Good. And how was Robert? Was he um, was he nice to you? He was very friendly. <laughs> very friendly indeed. We had a very nice chat about all sorts of things. Did he buy the Hagstrom? He did not. At least not while I was there. I'm hoping he he'll go back and and get it because it uh, the wand chooses the wizard and the wand seemed to choose him. Yeah, because I just bought a Hagstrom, but that's a vintage one and mine's not. Uh, it's a specialty instrument. Uh, the vintage ones are certainly furniture for the most part. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, don't tell him that, of course. But uh, yeah, maybe that's what he wants. Yeah. And, and this particular store here in Stockholm is sort of a legendary place. It's an amazing vibe and he's got all, all sorts of really 
interesting curiosity items hanging around. Um, Sven, who owns it, he's a, a drummer, that, and he's got probably 20 sets of drums in that store, and then he's got another 100 sets in his warehouse. Wow. wow. And wow. then, uh, and then you know, <laughs> all kinds of all kinds of interesting uh, guitars. He he's been thinning the herd a bit. I think he's actually closing the store, and he's just going to move his business back to his warehouse. So he's um, a couple of the really nice '60s Strats have have uh, have gone. Mm. Uh, the, the '56 Les Paul is no longer there. '56 Les Paul. Wow, that's good money. I know that. Um, you know of Kirk Pengilly from NXS? Yeah, I, you know, I know of him. I'm sure I met him yeah. back in the day. Yeah, well, he just had a big auction at Sotheby's and sold a bunch of stuff just like that. Oh, did he? Uh, yeah, huge mm. auction. I, I still have mine. I won't. That will be the last guitar I part with. In fact, I think I'm going to be buried with it, my, my 56 gold <laughs> top. <laughs> Maybe they'll have you taxidermied so they don't have to bury the guitar and just Ooh, stand you we, in the corner holding the guitar. Perhaps they could get me to Madame Tussauds. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, I was going to also suggest probably that it wouldn't be a great idea to tell anybody where you were buried. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. I'd stay buried right. with you for long. Yeah, <laughs> It'd be like Tutankhamun. Yeah. Yeah, good, good point. Good point. You know, I, now, wonder if, I wonder if Joe Bonamassa will, will be buried with his, his uh, nine sunbursts. Nine? Don't know. Wow. Oh, he's got nine of them and he's got, you know, a flying... He's got everything. I mean, he is the ultimate... Guitar, uh, uh, he, liter he literally calls it guitar safari. Every town he goes into, he picks up insane quantities of ri ridiculously perfect specimens of everything. Wow. Wow. Sounds nice. like me in the I local music store. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what plugins yeah. can I get today? What else? Oh, look at that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's all online plugins. Yeah. Now, we should give a bit of background because I mean, there's going to be people listening to the show that are going, uh, who's Eric Bazilian? Well, let me tell you, children, <laughs> sit down and listen to this. Um, you actually kicked off uh, working with Cindy Lauper. She's so unusual working on that album. I know you'd had bands before, but that was a mega album that you did. Yes. You played on. Uh, you did arrangements for. Um, then, of course, you had the band The Hooters, with, which we uh, still do. We which still you still do. do. In fact, Very you're touring actively. next year. I hear. Is that right? We're we're touring this summer. Wow. Okay. Well, watch out for that. You're not coming here, though. I gather to Australia. No, no. That's a long and sad story. Ah. Uh, because um, I did see you play live here in Australia, and in fact, I think you only did one show. Is that correct? We did. We did well three, if you count Molly Meldrum. We did. We did uh, a <laughs> countdown. Yes. Um, yeah. And and then we did a, a show at, uh, at some venue in Sydney, and then we went to Melbourne, where bada bing, bada boom. That's where we met first time, and and that was a big show. It's huge, and it really was. At that point, I thought, this is it. Our career is in Australia now. We're all going to move here, raise our families there, and um, and and live the life. Well, it was interesting but, because you had you had a. I think you only had about two hit singles at that point. All you zombies. I, all you zombies was it. That was and it was it went number one. Yeah. Of all songs. Yeah, and then so basically, you did a gig on one single. Know, and the crazy, place went off. I remember the place went off. It really Was did. It? And I, I told you in my, I think in my, in my, uh, my message that I, at one point I looked up and I, I forgot that I was completely across the world. I felt like I was right at home. It looked like our audience at home. It felt like our audience at home. It was almost a moving experience. Um, now, after the Hooters, well, even though you're still going, you also have, have dabbled in many things and continued to songwrite and arrange. You wrote one of the biggest hits of 
the 90s for Joan Osborne, One of Us. And you also produced that whole, the album, Relish, is that correct? Uh, well, Rick Chertoff was the actual producer. Rob and I were the co-production team, as it were. We, we, yeah. we really all worked together. And uh, credit where credit's through William Whitman, who was the engineer who had really as much input as anyone else into the, the production of it. Yeah. Although, I mean, it was, you know, it was Rick Chertoff. You know, he's the guy that insisted Cindy Lauper sing Girls Just Want to Have Fun, the song that she said, I will never sing. Um, and we tried many versions of it, and it wasn't until I came up with that guitar riff that she said, oh, I always wanted to sing that song. <laughs> <laughs> Hindsight, yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> the, other, the other notable things in your career, you uh, opened in li- the Live Aid concerts in Philadelphia in 1985. Uh, the Amnesty International concert at the Giant Stadium in 1986, and the opening act for Roger Waters' The Wall in Berlin when the wall came down. That was quite a, quite a day and night. That was my birthday, too. I had forgotten it was my birthday until the very end of the show where we were sent up to the top of the scaffolding on stage left, which was probably 100 metres up. The Scorpions were on the other scaffold on stage right, and I'm looking out on 300,000 people when the fireworks go off. And that's when I realized, oh, they're saying happy birthday to me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I've, actually, I've seen the video. They do. They do. They do. They? It, was all, yeah. it, was all, it was all about me. Well, of course it was. You also wrote um, Robbie Williams' first solo hit, uh, number two in the UK. Um, yes, that's you've, right. Yeah, you've worked with the Scorpions, Midure, Patti Smythe, Bon Jovi, John Bon Jovi. I also know that you worked with Prince. I'm not quite sure what you did with Prince, but um, what was that? Well, he just, he covered one of us um, totally out of out of left field. All of a sudden, I heard he's got a new new album coming out with uh, three covers, and he'd never recorded any covers before. One of which was was one of us. It's very grandiose, very Prince-like. It's sort of a cartoon version of of, uh, <laughs> of the original. It's actually in the same key, which is. Um, um, a bit of a challenge for him because I, 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 I know people's vocal ranges. I can tell from hearing a, a one track really is kind of where someone's voice sits. And uh, he's got that amazing falsetto, but his, his um, natural range really kind of ends it around an F sharp or a G. And the, the chorus on that goes to an A. And he did a very clever thing. The verse sits great in his, in his vocal range. So he, he sang a lower harmony on the chorus and had a synth play the melody. I don't know if this is of interest to your listeners, yeah, but absolutely. I, yeah, absolutely. I find it fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're going somewhere that I was going to head anyway, so keep going. Well, actually, uh, I'll, go, I'll go back about six months before that. I got a, um, uh, a cassette in the mail from a Japanese Hooters fan with a live recording, bootleg recording from the Budokan, two nights of, of uh, live recordings, and he was doing one of us already then. And um, uh, I guess this was before the, yeah, well before the album came out, before I knew it was going to be on the album. And the intro, you know, the band is pumping, bum, 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 and he starts speaking, I love this song. This song is written by Joan Osborne. Sing along, won't you? Whoops. <laughs> That's fine. They spelled my name right on the album, which is a very rare and unusual thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, nothing was better than having Dr. Evil cover it. Dr. Evil? Yes, um, Austin Powers 2. Oh, uh, that's uh, right. That's right. Yes, I do remember. Yeah. Yes. And the, the best thing about that is, you know, he's, he's playing it with a little rat, the, with uh, number two is, is on a little white piano on top of his grand piano, and uh, he's playing it for number two and his minions. And it's, the year is 1966. 
or thereabouts. And when he finishes this, he just does like 30 seconds of it. And he says, thank you, I wrote that. (laughs) And the fact that he was playing the song in 1960, whatever, he actually had written it because it was 30 years until the song was actually written. Time capsule. Now, we should ask you, why are you in Stockholm and not back in Philly? Well, um, I married into the faith 20-some years ago, and I've spent every summer here since. And um, we've spent a couple of full years here, and it just seemed like it was time for a change. I was very, very comfortable at home in, in Pennsylvania in my house in my, my incredibly tricked-out studio that's held together by scotch tape and rubber bands. Yeah. Um, so I just sort of felt like it was time for a change for me. Uh, all Swedes really wanted to be back here. And our, our daughter, who was the one offspring we had left at home, wanted to finish school here. So it seemed like a perfect opportunity. We found a great apartment to rent here. We rented out our house there. I still have access to the studio. So it was a perfect alignment of circumstance. You're living there permanently? Is that the, well, semi-permanently? Well, for for it'll be two years, and then we'll we will reevaluate. I'm back and forth a lot, and I'm touring a lot as well. So I, I'm still a, a U.S. resident. Yeah, I'm interested in something you said in there. You said you, you would get feeling a bit comfortable in Philly. Do you do you need to be uncomfortable? Do you think to to keep your craft up? I think too much comfort is a, is a handicap. I think that one needs to occasionally push the envelope a bit, change a venue. Um, there were a lot of opportunities in Philadelphia, but um, there's a tendency for what happens in Philly to stay in Philly. Yeah. And there's such, just such a vibrant music scene here in Stockholm, although stylistically not necessarily what I'm about, but um, they seem to greet me here with open arms. So um, a lot of really different opportunities have, have presented themselves for me while I've been here. And uh, it's, it's really been fun. As I mentioned to you, actually, a mate of mine, Chris Bailey, uh, who people may know from the Saints, he also married a Swedish lady. Um, Even though they're living in Amsterdam now and have been for quite some time, he was living in Malmo for years. And from what I gather, the music scene, he recorded quite a few albums down there. It was pretty happening down in Malmo. Yeah, well, it's funny, you know, it's the same country, but it's a very, the the distances are so, so great here. It's it's a very different scene in Malmö. You're you're in Malmö, you're in Malmö. You're in Gothenburg, you're in Gothenburg. Um, You're in Stockholm, you're you're pretty much in Stockholm. I mean, I'm I'm living sort of right in the, the, the heart of the artichoke here. And it's amazing. Every block probably has 20 recording studios. Wow, really? Socked away. And, you know, they're usually... A, a windowless cubicle somewhere, um, but uh, many hit songs are written and recorded there. Um, I, I got very lucky here. You know, I was in a bit of a panic when, when we, I realized I was going to be spending so much time here. Um, you know, I, I can really work anywhere with a laptop and, 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 my, and a small interface, a couple of mics, some guitars, and a bass and a keyboard. But um, even where where would I set that up? And as it turned out, there's a large room in the basement here that no one's using in the basement of our apartment building. And the neighbors were actually very happy to have me using it. So I set up down there. I got that Sonarworks um, speaker correction thing to because the room is sonically a nightmare. And it seems to work very well. And since I've been down there, I've recorded a Swedish hard rock band. Uh, everything except the drums. We you know, sent the files and had the drums recorded somewhere else, but recorded all the vocals, guitars, bass down there, and it worked out just great. The band is called, uh, called Crash Diet, and apparently they're huge in South America. Oh, right, okay. 
So what, how did you, what, what did you use to set up your speakers to get the balance right? Um, it's, a, it's, it's something that um, well, my friend William Whitman recommended called Sonarworks Reference. And it comes with a, a flat reference mic and, you know, you measure the, the, the drivers on the speakers and then it gives you 20 different spots around the room to measure and it gives you an EQ curve. Um, which it's, it's a plug-in that you put on the, the, the last insert on your, your playback bus, and it basically does the, re- the reverse of what the EQ curve of the speakers in the room is. Oh, wow. Yeah, Genelec have just released something similar to that, I think. It's, um, uh, uh, do you know about that, Eric? N- uh, no, but, but that's, prob- that's probably just to work with their speakers. Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, uh, JBL does that too. The thing about this is you measure anything, and um, it's really amazing. And I, I've, I've, I keep re- doing the measurements because the curve just looks so crazy. This can't be the, the truth, but I keep doing it. And it keeps coming up the same. And what's really interesting is it shows the, um, even shows the asymmetry in the room. Like the, the, the left and right curves are, are somewhat different and as well as the levels. Wow. Wow. That's and interesting. it also has, I'm, boy, they, they should really give me free shit after this. Oh, it's good. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sponsored by? <laughs> yeah. It also comes with, um, with uh, preset corrections for different headphones. Okay. Wow. Basically, any, any headphone you can imagine. So I was surprised because, I, you know, I, I, I had a little impulse buy. I bought the uh, Sennheiser HD 800s, which are amazing. And even they have a curve. You would think that they would be absolutely flat. Yeah. Because they're, you know, yeah. Wow, there you go. Yeah, yeah. We were talking about the headphones the uh, other week about those. I can't even think of the word called. George was talking about them, but they actually um, they send sound into your eardrum, and the reflection goes back, and then it calculates your hearing where you lost hearing and the strengths of your hearing, and then adapts the sound that you're going to hear in the headphones to your hearing. Uh, I've just had my hearing tested. I don't need to be reminded about that. <laughs> Sorry, what was that? What do you say? No, I've just had my hearing tested again, and I don't need to be reminded about the fact that yeah, I so basically I- have noth- nothing over 2K. <laughs> Yeah, we'll put the dog out in a moment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, you're, you mentioned you're working with a road case. I'm curious, what's in your rig that you take on the road with you? If I know I'm going to be gone for a while... I'll bring the Apollo. I have an Apollo Duo with like loaded with every plug-in they make. Um, I will bring one good mic. Um, now that I've got the MT711 back, it'll probably be that one. I've got a couple of M- uh, M930s with me, and I also have that Slate mic, the virtual mic system. Yeah, yeah. Which um, I got that while while my uh, my Gefels were in the shop, and it's really pretty miraculous. It it really does an amazing job at modeling all of these. Amazing vintage tube microphones. Yeah, he's doing, he's been certainly, uh, I saw him at NAM getting up on stage and spruiking it. And I've seen a couple of people talk to him. There's a guy called Warren Hewitt who does a podcast, a video podcast um, called Produce Like a Pro. Um, yep. and he interviewed him quite a while ago and went through the whole thing. It looked really good, really interesting. Um, but you have to use his mic. And I think there's another one where you can use any mic as long as it's pretty flat. Well, that's um, the... Um I mean, supposedly you can use this software with, with, with any flat mic. Um, then, you know, Antares has their mic modeler where you, you actually uh, select the, the, your source mic and then it can supposedly change it into whatever. And uh, I've used that as well. And that works too. And I've used this Slate mic with no, none of the modeling software and it sounds great. Oh, it's interesting. I mean, it really, you can you can do a lot with with just about anything. It's amazing what EQ and compression can do for you. Oh, yeah. Yes. Exactly. Well, is it not true that Bono did the vocals for 
I think it was the unforgettable fire in the control room with an SM58. I've heard that that's always his mic of choice. Yeah, right. There you go. And, and you know, we've done, uh, we did a live record last year and it was, you know, recorded with whatever beta 58s, whatever our, our front of house guy likes to use. And there were vocal bits that we had to punch in. We punched them in with the Giffel 92 through my signal chain. And really nobody ever said, oh, you, you punched in with a different microphone there. Obviously, that's that's how you process the the signal you yeah. put in there. I yeah. guess, yeah. yeah. But is it you're one of the few people I know that uh, the, the reason I know you've got these microphones is because I've had Microtech Gefels for years. I love them, and uh, I was just perusing the internet one day to see who else had them, and I saw that uh, Rob Hyman had them yep. in his studio at Elm Street Studios. Is I think yep. it's the name of his studio. I saw that and I saw, and also someone mentioned that it was on Gear Sluts, I think, that Cindy Lauper, she uses Microtech and it's probably with you guys, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, probably, because um, I, know, I know she has a browner at home. Oh, uh, okay. You've got quite a collection of uh, Microtech gefils. I've got, uh, yeah, yeah. What have I got? I've got uh, two of these MT711s. I also have the 711S or T, whatever the, the newer version of that is. I've got two of the, whatever the little pencil guy is. Um, yep. After after learning my lesson with with having a, the Seven Eleven on a snare drum, um, <laughs> yes, smash! I, I, I just can't I can't abide by a fifty seven on a snare. I'm sorry, everybody loves it. I I, I don't. It's not my thing. Um, and then uh, I've got the you know the uh, the the, the ninety two, which is actually I think one serial number away from the one we used on the Joan Osborne record. That that was all all the Gefell UM ninety two. Do any artists you work with have any weird preferences? Stuff that you've had to go and research when you've heard what they wanted to bring along or anything like that? Um, they've all been pretty happy with what I've put up in front of them. Yeah. I mean, okay. when, I'm, when I'm working, when I'm working in, in my home studio back home, I'll put up the Browner, put up the, the uh, UM92. Uh, occasionally, I'll throw up one of the 7-Elevens, and some people prefer that. I, rem- I know that like, it, when we were um, recording the Hooters, we would every time we would go into the record plant, the legendary late great record plant. We would line up every mic they had and do a shootout, and we always ended up with a FET forty seven. Is that right? Always, always. It it just it just destroyed everything in its path, including the they had two really nice forty uh, sevens there. So what was what was so good about the FET forty seven? It just sounded good. You know, it had a presence and a bit bigness to it, and seemed to work on our our voices. Yeah, yeah, because I, um, I picked up a mic, which I've then sold, actually, and Robbo was using it last week when he was in Melbourne, um, which was uh, a guy out of the Ukraine, I think, uh, Jay-Z, mm-hmm. and um, there was a shootout on Gear Sluts, and the guy that put it up actually wanted to get the premium engineers who were listening. He knew the guys he wanted. And out of those eight guys, seven of them thought that the... Jay-Z V47 was the 47, and the real 47 in the mix wasn't the real 47. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, you know, I'm, sh- I'm sure you've seen the shootouts with the slate mic compared to the, to the originals. Yeah. It's, you know, it's all in the ear of the beholder. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I had the opportunity to meet th- three of the Beatles at uh, different times, and uh, when I met Paul... About 30 years ago, we did Top of the Pops with him, and I had my, my list of questions. You know, if I ever meet Paul, you know, what mm. did you play on this? What did you use on that? And he really didn't know, and he really didn't yeah. care. It, it, like you said, it was what, whatever was there. Well, it's funny because um, one of the guys, the engineers, lives in Sydney, 
a guy called Richard Lush, and he was talking about because I said to him, "What's the, what was the normal day at, at EMI Studios? What how did the days work?" It was very factory-like, you know. They just set up the kit, they put all the mics in, everything's ready to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the weirdest thing, and I don't know whether this is weird or maybe you do things the same way, but the bass track was the last thing they put down, the bass guitar. Yeah, that I believe from from Sergeant Pepper on, that, that that's what he did. Um, I mean, I know you know early on they recorded as a band, you know, live vocals as well. It was yep. really quite extraordinary that they were able to do that and get the incredible clarity of sound that they did. And that was Norman Smith. Who became Hurricane Smith. I didn't know that until recently. Oh, babe. (laughs) You know, it's funny uh, because William Whitman, who is my my guru for all things Sonic, you know, he he engineered the Cindy record, the the Joan record. He engineered uh, Nervous Night, which had all you zombies, and then we danced on it. But um, his philosophy with microphones is, why wouldn't you use the best microphone you have for everything? Yeah, and? And that's what I do. You know, yeah. I, I used I used to set up you know a little pencil mic for an acoustic guitar because that's what you do, and then he he came over once and said, "Well, why aren't you just using your ninety two? It's the best mic you have." Okay, you roll off some bottom end. Yep. Yeah, duh. Now that's interesting. You talk about the bottom end in the ninety two. Do you do you find that the uh, that that Gefell does have a lot of bottom end? I I find that acoustic guitars in general have a lot of bottom end, which needs to be rolled off. So. I don't know that the 92 has any more bottom end than this 711 or, or uh, well, definitely more than a 57. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but and I find it's a very nicely balanced mic. And remember, they vary from, from mic to mic. Yeah, depending you know, on how old is yours? Mine's, oh, I got mine in 96. I mean, I yeah. have actually all of, all of my Gefels I got in 96, 97, except for the M930s. I got them in 2002. Now, this is funny because I'd never heard of Microtech Gefels, and whenever you mention Microtech Gefels to a lot of people, they have no idea what you're talking about. I know, I um, love that. Yeah, but uh, and, and of course they're the original Neumann, really. I mean, the Neumann factory yep. was moved to Gefell, and that's they were Neumann Gefell until the wall basically went up, and that was the end of that. But uh, So how did you hear about Microtech Gefels? Well, when we went in to do the Joan Osborne record, uh, uh, William Whitman had... He had learned about them and uh, had gotten a, a room full of them. So that's basically what we used. I know, I know he had at least a pair of the 711s and the 92 for the vocal. I mean, you know, obviously, the, I think he uh, was SM7 on the kick drum and, and, and bass. Um, but it was mostly Gefels. It was that and the Daking uh, modules, which uh, Jeff, Jeff Daking is a good friend of ours, and he actually set up the studio in a house that we'd rented to, to make that album, and he let us use his, uh, the, his prototype modules, and um, I think we cut just about everything through them. So, your studio, can you um, give us a rundown what it's like, the one back in, um, back in the US? It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a carriage house. Our house is 130 years old, yep. and uh, the reason... The, the, the reason we, we jumped on it was because it had this great little carriage house in the back. And originally, uh, I just soundproofed the, the downstairs because upstairs was just a, an unusable attic. So for the first five years, I worked in one room. You know, when I cut drums, I put headphones on. And um, then I, uh, I built up. I had a friend who's a guitarist and builder. And I said, I'll produce your album. You build my studio. So we... <laughs> We dormered out the second floor, and I put all these great windows across. And I had George uh, Oxberger come in and do his, you know, wave his magic wand a couple of times. But uh, so basically, downstairs is now the loud room where I have the drums mic'd up. 
and all of the guitar amps that I haven't turned on since I profiled them into my Kemper. Um, and then upstairs is where the, the magic happens. I've got the, my, you know, my big console thing with all of the outboard gear in it and um, my Pro Tools HDX rig. I have a, a, a 1901 Steinway C that... Uh, Everyone scratches their head and tries to figure out how I got it in there. Um, <laughs> how did you get it in there? <laughs> I had sent the piano uh, off to Steinway to get it, uh, to get it uh, rebuilt. It, it needed some love. But right before they took it, they measured it. <clears throat> and when they built the staircase up, they took that into account. Well, they measured wrong. Oh, no. So fortunately, when I, when I built up, I was going to put a, a deck on the side and uh, there was uh, sort of a half-sized door there already, so I said, let's just make that a full-size door, and eventually I built, a, built the deck. Well, I never built the deck, but I had the full-size door. So fortunately, they were able to crane the piano in through that door. Wow. That would have been a disaster. <laughs> oh, man. And, and it was also a good thing because uh, it was a couple more years until we ran water out to the studio, so that door became my, my, the men's room at night. <laughs> yes. <laughs> nice. Now, what's the, what's the movie? You know, the Mighty Mighty Eagle? Mighty Mighty yeah. Eagle. Yes. <laughs> so, so the obvious question comes then, Eric, uh, favourite piece of outboard gear? Um, I'd have to say, my, well, for, you know, for Mike Pree's, um my Dakings, I, I just love the way they sound. Yeah. For, you know, for a while I was doing that whole mix and match thing. I had a couple of uh, DW Ferns. Um, that I used on, on vocals, which sounded great, but I always found that I had to brighten them up to make them uh, sit in the track with everything that I'd recorded through the discrete solid state dakings. I'm mostly using the, uh, the channel strip four uh, with no EQs, you know, because the plugins are perfectly adequate. Although for drums, I have the, his original EQ strips set up and they're pr pr I pretty much never touch them. Um, for recording guitars and such, I've got a, a manly L-op which is kind of like an LA-2A, which adds a nice sauce to everything. Vocals, I always record through an API 525, which is the one thing I have not found a really good plug-in for yet. Yeah, really? So I, yeah, I, I, someone, someone does make one, but I'm waiting for, for UAD to, yeah. to put that in their uh, thing so I can just record through it. Uh, I always use the daking compressors on my master bus. Um, Slate master bus comes close, the red... But uh, given my preference, I'll use hardware on on the master bus. And then um, I've got an A and D Compex, which is sitting sitting around there somewhere. But you know, all the all of those records that we strive to emulate were made on consoles that had one one yes. kind of mic. That's right. So yeah, exactly. You know, so I, what about like plugins that. then? What's the go-to ones for them? Oh, you know, it, it changes week to week. It's you know whatever the okay. flavor of. The, of What's the, the new toy is. in the toolbox? You're a bit like me. Uh, yeah, um, well, you know, the Slate stuff I, I'm using a lot, um, obviously, and the, and the UAD. Uh, I, I, you know, my go-to vocal chain, if I'm using one of the Gefells, is the, the, the 1073 into a Fairchild. Then the, uh, I, I love their, uh, their uh, EMT250 emulation. I have actually been using the, uh, the API channel strip in Unison. That worked out very well recently. The, the MJUC, MJUC, I, I think Klangheim makes that. That's a very nice sort of LA-2A-ish compressor. Hmm. Um, uh, actually, uh, an esoteric pl plug-in that I, that I love is the, uh, the DAD tape uh, by a company called Dewey, D-U-I, from Spain. And 
they made the first tape and, and uh, valve saturation plugins, which is the reason I bought Pro Tools. It was the first time that Pro Tools sounded like music to me. And um, there was a time where they, they hadn't updated to 64-bit, so I wasn't able to use them. And now that they're back, you know, I've got the, I've got, you know, the, the, the UAD tape machines, I've got the Slate, I've got but them all, and, and they all have different flavors. But I tend to default to the dad tape. I'm going to hit you with a uh, probably a question you're going to scoff at me about, but being a post-production engineer, music mixing techniques have probably been something that I've never really taken any notice of until the last four or five years when I've really sort of tried to extend myself and learn a bit more about my craft. And I've recently been toying with parallel compression on voiceover as opposed to vocals. But my, que- my question, is it something you do, parallel compression, when you're mixing a vocal? I never intentionally... Um just because, to, to me, you just set the threshold right and, you know, it's compressing the right amount. Yeah. I'm sort of old, old school that way. But uh, actually another plugin that I've, I've recently become rather fond of is the Sheps Channel Strip. And uh, um, since all these plugins, you know, the, the Slate and the, and the Sheps, and they, they all come with, there's so many components in it, I, I've become a fan of just checking out the different presets. Yeah. And uh, I've noticed that a lot of the presets that I like have you know, have the compression mix dialed back to 50% on, on the vocals yeah. or yeah. or whatever. And, and it works very, very well. I, you know, again, I just haven't done that. I, honestly, if it's a choice between tweaking plugins and, and um, learning to play Bach violin sonatas on the mandolin, I will choose the latter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I, I guess for me, it, it sort of, it started for me because I, I do a bit of imaging work for radio stations still. I, um, radio, imaging production has moved along a long way from when I used to do it and and they're getting these really amazing voiceover sounds like these big fat you know voice completely processed and and sort of not anything that you would do musically but right. I, I sort of been sort of toying around with you know how to get that sound and how to get it to sound even better and um yeah I, someone suggested parallel compression and and I've sort of been toying with it it's kind of interesting that the difference it does make um and and I guess, AP, if you're not aware of what we're talking about, it's where you have a voice track that you process as you normally would, but then you take that same signal and put it on another bus on your mixer and you basically compress the living shit, living shit out of it and then yep. mix that in with the original. And the idea is that it's, I don't know, I mean, what's it, it's sort of giving it a bit more punch really, isn't it, Eric? I, actually, there's a plug-in called the, uh, oh God, what is that? It's the Sound Toys, like, oh, Devil Look. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's this extreme, you know, just absolute ultimate squash compress- compressor, which generally one uses at about 10% of the compressed signal with that. So I okay. guess, yeah, I, I have been using parallel compression because if you use that on its own, you're just obliterating everything. Yeah. But it does add an exciting, an exciting element to it. It does. I mean, there's, no, there's no way you could ever make my voice anything than the mid-rangey squeak that it is, so <laughs> I don't really worry about that. Was, what was that? Pl- I'm just writing it down. Devil Lock, L-O-C? Is that, is that yeah, the one Yeah, I, I think yeah, it's okay. Sound Toys. Okay, I'll go find there's it. A, there's, a, there's a free one that does not have a, um, a, a mix control on it. Okay. There's so many of them out there, mm. and then and then you know I you know I always get the, the emails from all of them, and especially Waves, and they're always selling everything. And uh, Bill Whitman calls it the death by a thousand twenty nine dollar cuts. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. what it is. They're always twenty nine dollars. Was three hundred and twenty now twenty nine dollars. Right, right. Yeah, it's funny, that, but, but there's uh, someone else was saying recently. Um, 
that now with all the plugins, you can have a studio at home with about $3 million worth of gear in it yeah, for about a thousand bucks. Yeah, don't doubt that at all. Yeah. Do you, do you prefer working in the box? It's the only way I work. I wouldn't know what to do with a console. You know, I, I worked on a Porta studio until they built my, my studio, and I started with um, a couple of DA88s. This was before Pro Tools had really crossed my radar. And I did get that Yamaha, whatever it was, the digital console. So I worked with that for a while, but that was really only a matter of six months before I got Pro Tools. And I, from, from then on, I was in the box. Mm. And, um, you know, I've, I've worked with mixers who break out into all the hardware. And I guess if that works for them, that, that's great. But again, even William, who is the, the most hardcore sonic snob, he's working in the, bus, in the box now. What do you think is um, different about working in the box? Do you think it makes for a better product? It makes me able to mix because I don't have a console. The total recall thing is great. Um, I think the fact that it gives you infinite choices is a good thing and a bad thing. You know, I know I've, I've gotten up in the middle of the night saying, oh my God, that kick drum's too loud. And I've spent... I thought, you know, literally it'll take me 30 seconds to pull the kick drum at DB. And then, of course, oh, that, that vocal could be a little brighter. And then, you know, the sun's coming up and it wasn't broken. I fixed it. I've heard people say that the, the problem is you just cannot make a decision. I look in my Dropbox and every song I'm working on, you know, there are 15 mixes, 15 versions. And I listen through them and I go, what's the difference? What's the difference? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, I'm, as time goes on, I'm kind of like, I've kind of taken the, if it ain't broke, don't fix it approach to it. It's like, you know, if I hear that something's bugging me and no one else says, especially, you know, the artist I'm working with says anything, I'll just leave it. Yeah. I know you've got a mate in um, Stockholm who's involved with casting voiceovers and stuff. So you've, you, you've got a bit of connection to voiceover. Um, what would you, if you would, if you happen to be the person recording a voiceover, what would you use? I probably, I would use the best mic I have. Um, I would use my regular signal chain. I don't really know the, the particulars of voiceover. I did a voiceover, it's funny enough, for a, um, a radio station in, in, uh, in Uppsala in Sweden. In, they, wanted, they wanted an American voice speaking Swedish. Right. Yep. It, was, it was an advertisement for a happy hour for some bar. And, you know, I just used my, I, was, I happened to be in, in my studio in the U.S. then, so I did it on the 92 through the, you know, my usual signal chain. No one complained, so I guess it worked. How did they yeah, find yeah. you for that? Uh, there aren't a lot of Americans who speak, who speak good Swedish here. Right, okay. There you go. You know, That's you, this is, this is a, you can, I know people who have lived here 20, 30 years who really don't speak a word of the language. Yeah. Some creative casting, though, that's... Uh Casting yeah, I thought it was for cool. someone. Absolutely, they actually wanted a uh, you know an African American speaking Swedish, and um, uh, I, I couldn't get my I couldn't get my head around that. And, and, and the funny thing is, I've been told that I don't sound like an American when I speak Swedish. I sound more Middle Eastern because I roll my R's. Most Americans don't even bother trying; they'll just go "ja protar jätte bra svenska," which means I speak very good Swedish. I'll say "ja protar jätte bra svenska." My R is a little farther back. Swedes do the total tongue tongue roll. I can't do that. I have more of like a German R in the middle as opposed to the French. I'm yeah. kind of up there somewhere. Yeah, and apparently right. that's, what, that's how Middle Easterners speak Swedish. So. Now, you don't just speak Swedish because I saw you performing, um, singing one of us and then all of a sudden singing it in German. 
Yeah, I like to do that. <laughs> I also do. We we also do. We do major tom in German, like straight through. And the thing, you know, one of us is fairly easy in German because the you know the pace of the vocal is very very easy. Um, not that many words because I only do the second verse and and chorus in German. But major tom that was a bear. I mean, I I don't need the cue cards anymore. But for a while. I would actually make a shtick out of it. I'd pull the card up off the, off the stage for the last verse. Um, but I'm a good mimic, you know. I'm, and I mean, I, and I do know what I'm singing in in the German. My German is good enough to get my head around that. But uh, the uh, one of us came about because a, a German band did an amazing cover. It's uh, they're called Erdmöbel, which apparently means earth furniture. Um, and, <laughs> Fair enough. And and they did this wacky genius video. Um, using uh, prom promo video clips from Germany from like the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And um, it had mariachi horns and an accordion. And the guy sang it in this very low, droll voice. And a fan sent me a translation back into English. And I said, wow, this is really cool. Because the, the chorus, you know, the original chorus is, what, you know, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? In German... It's Vere Gott einer Vivir. What if God was one of us? Eingeschlafen mit einem Bier, passed out with a beer. Nur ein Fremder um halb vier, just a stranger at 3:30 in the morning, in der letzten Straßenbahn, in the last trolley car. Oh wow! They <laughs> are so very specific. They, they had me at passed out with a beer. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I've taken it upon myself to learn choice phrases in all sorts of. Languages. I, I do some some Polish tongue twisters. Um, I, I can say some nonsense sentences in in Hungarian. It's just fun. Yeah, it's very handy. Always very handy. I made a complete ass of myself in Paris. I was in a restaurant and uh, been out all afternoon drinking, and probably wasn't such a good idea to get up at the uh, the end of the meal and um, make a speech in French to uh, <laughs> the rest of the <laughs> restaurant. And uh, I opened the speech up by saying, in French, my name is Australian. Um, uh, so we're off to a flying start. I mean, they, yeah. they're thinking, that's a very unusual name, or this guy is an idiot. And of course, the <laughs> latter was the uh, Je m'appelle Australia. Yeah, je m'appelle Australien. <laughs> yep, that's what happened. That's what happened yep. to me. Yeah, they were right. horrified. Horrified. So what's your preference? Is it um, songwriting? Is it performing? Is it sitting in the studio recording? I really love it all. Songwriting is kind of like walking on thin ice. I always get this feeling in the pit of my stomach that you know that I'm going to throw up, and that's when I know something good's going to happen. Yeah, um, uh, it's sort of a necessary evil. Um, I never wanted to be a songwriter. All I ever really wanted to be was a guitar player. Um, started singing by default because when Rob and I put the Hooters together, which was going to be our last band, this was like our last shot at it because we'd had. Several false starts before that, and neither one of us was really a singer. And we just said, "Let's see how far we can get with this." So that was, you know, singers by default. And I've always had a technical bent. I have, I have a degree in physics. Oh wow! Um, I built a ham radio gear when I was ten years old, and um, always did my own repair work on my on my my amps and guitars. So um, when the recording technology became available to me. I, I dove in, and um, so yeah, I love I love writing a song. I love recording. I love getting guitar parts and sounds. But then I also love just sitting with the tracks and you know manipulating and 
you know, diving, getting molecular with it. What's yeah. the weirdest thing you've ever done to get a guitar sound that you wanted? Um, I, I, you know, probably just recording through, through a really crappy little amp. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, again, I've been in the box now for probably seven years. I got, um, I wasn't completely sold on the plug-in thing. You know, I had Amp Farm early on and Amplitude, but then when they came out with 11, that was the first really good uh, AC30 mm-hmm. um, emulation. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool AC30 lover. I still have the, the first AC30 I, I ever bought in 1967, which is what I made m- most of those records with. Um, but I would still, you know, rec- you know, go downstairs and turn the amp on and you know, mic it up and hope for the best. But then uh, when I got the, I they heard about the Kemper and uh, they sent me one to demo. And the first thing I did was, of course, profile that AC30 and, and my, my, my best Marshall. And really, I've, I've never looked back since then. Do you have any rituals in the way you work? Like, that, I mean, besides the basic stuff of setting up a Pro Tools session, do you have any, anything that's sort of not negotiable in the way you set up a session or the way you work in general when you record? No, it's, to- it's totally slipshod. Yeah. I mean, you'd think by now I'd have templates and, you know, I, I've made a couple of templates and they're, you know, they're hidden on a hard drive somewhere. But no, I pretty much just, you know, open up a Pro Tools session and um, I, I have gotten to the point where I will actually import a drum template from another session, whatever the right. last session I, I happened to do was. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, you know, I, again, when I'm working at home, I've got my signal chain. Um, it's, it's not hardwired, but my, my patch bay makes no sense at all. I can't even figure out what's where, so I pretty much just try to leave everything, everything as is. And, you know, I've got, you know, again, I've got my go-to plug-in chains. Mm. I've also, beca- I'm a big fan of, of, uh, of guitar rig. Yep. Just because, I mean, if I, you know, if I want to make a sound like my, my AC30, I don't use that. But I love pulling it up and just trying presets and getting sounds that I would never, never imagine, imaginably create for myself that, that work. Mm. What about songwriting? Ritual, do you have rituals there? Um, not, not really. Uh, no, I mean, yeah, yeah, I sit down with an instrument, usually a guitar, sometimes a mandolin or a mandola or a piano. And I'll start playing, and um, uh, if something pops into my head, I'll start singing. Um, often what happens is I'll create a little basic track, a little song structure, and then uh, put the microphone and record and sing mm. and see what comes out. I mean, that's, that's how I wrote One of Us. I literally uh, created the track to com- to, um, um, at the request of my then-girlfriend, now, now wife, to show her how my Porta studio worked. And um, I'd been playing that guitar riff all day and I made a little track out of it. I had an Ensonic EPS at the time, which uh, I don't know if you, I don't know if that ever no, made it to Australia. But no, I don't Ensonic, know. Ensonic, they, they were the first company that made sampling available to the consumer. Um, they came out with the Mirage, which is sort of the $1,000 answer to the $8,000 emulator. Right. And then they, you know, ne- next generation was the uh, ASR10 and the EPS. Um, they've since gone the way of all flesh, but uh, actually a good friend of mine wrote all the code for those instruments. So I always had, had their, their latest generation. Actually, there's some videos of Kanye work, working with it, with it, with Insonic samplers way back in the day. But, um, uh, you know, I programmed the drums and, and a bass and a keyboard and recorded uh, the guitar and, and tracked to two of the four. And then the, the girlfriend slash wife said, now sing it. And, I put, you know, cha- track three, I put it in record and sang, and that, that's literally what came out. Mm. Wow. 
that's, wow, that's, that's amazing. That's came out one of us. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I've, so I've been can... waiting a while for that to happen again. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it does, <laughs> and it, it does happen to, to greater or lesser degrees. I mean, I really found that it, the, the more I can get my brain out of, it, out of the equation, the more likely I am to come up with something from the heart. Yeah. See, I work on another podcast um, and we interviewed John Karabi and we were talking to him about songwriting and he was saying how he actually leaves the lyric writing till last. Like he'll, they'll, they'll sort of, someone will have a, you know, a, a guitar riff or something and that'll turn into a song. And then he'll, he'll, when they're sort of halfway through that or finished that, he'll disappear into a back room and just by himself. And he loves the pressure of, okay, I've got to get a lyric out. And that's when he writes his lyric. But now I don't know if they're writing the melody at the same time as the lyrics. Uh, in that, yeah, I don't know. Didn't get into see, that. For me, deep. For, see, I have a, my mantra is uh, it's not a melody until it has lyrics, and it's not a lyric until it has a melody. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. There you go. They often come at the same time. Yeah, it's funny how things you know can start. I was with a friend of mine who's a musician and a songwriter who lives down the coast here, and we go to the gym together. And I'd probably have well, that. A, a, well, well, that's your first mistake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we are good friends. Um, so anyway, we were. Um, it was the, the. It was one of those morning after kind of things. You know, probably a few too many the night before, and it was a bit of a struggle. Um, and it, and he said, "Oh, how are you feeling?" I said, "Oh man, I got up on the wrong side of yesterday." Ooh. And uh, he went, "Oh, I like that." I said, "What?" He said, "I like. I like that. That's that's really good." I went, okay. So he said, can you write something? So I quickly wrote some lyrics. Anyway, we, we knocked out a, a song within about two hours. Well, just comes. Yeah. Which is, I'll send it to you. I'll send it to you, Eric. That, cool. See, that's the, that's the magic. That's, that's what you have to do all of the other work to get. Yes. All the ba- yeah. banging your head and, and, you know, what about yeah. this? How about that? No. And, the, you know, you write the chorus and then the verses and then the chorus doesn't make sense with the verses. So you change the chorus and then you realize you ruined the whole thing and you start over again. Mm. Yes. It was a good, it was an interesting process for me because I've always been interested in, in, you know, dabbling in something like I want to learn to play the guitar, which I've never done. And I finally bought mm. a guitar that's left-handed for me so I can not struggle to play a right-handed guitar. I see. I'm left-handed. I think I have the advantage playing what's traditionally called right-handed guitar. Ah. So you play right-handed though, don't you? I do. I think it's left-handed because my left hand is doing all the hard work. So you're not, are you really left-handed or are you... I'm, I'm really left-handed. Oh, yeah. So did you flip guitars over when you were a kid or did you just learn to play with the strings up the... No, my right hand, my right-handed uncle handed me a right-handed guitar, and I learned my first few chords on that. And then uh, after uh, the Beatles thing on Ed Sullivan, which was when I got serious, um, I played nonstop for about a week until my fingers literally I could not touch the strings. So I actually did restring the guitar, flipped it over, and taught myself to play left-handed. And I, it took about two weeks, and I realized that I could go either way at that point. And then I just decided that it would be easier to, to play what is traditionally right-handed, and I think that was the right decision. Yeah. The funny thing is, I, was, I saw an interview with Ringo Starr, and I never knew he was left-handed. And a lot of people try and copy some of his, you know, his yeah. drum patterns, and they can never get there's certain drum, uh, drum patterns, certain songs, and I think it could be... Uh, is it Ticket to Ride or something? I think it's Ticket to Ride. And there's a kind of weird kind of delay going on. And he mm-hmm. explained it. He said, I can't get my hand over the top of the other... I have to go over the top of the other hand to get to the, you know, 
the, the next part, the next part of the pattern. Right. And it just has that slight delay where someone would just normally clack, they just hit right. the thing. He's got right, that sort of quarter second delay. Of course, now we could just quantize that. And I was going to say, there's no Pro Tools back in those days. <laughs> no, that's right. Thank, thank goodness. Yeah, but yeah thank goodness there's, But thank goodness there's Pro Tools now because we were able to get that, um, that, uh, that controversial uh, new mix of Sgt. Pepper. Yeah, right. Which yeah, would not yeah. have been possible if they had not been able to go back to the source, the four-track reels, and separate everything back out. And, you know, I have friends who think it's the worst thing ever Personally, you know, if I want to hear the original, I'll listen to my, my mono vinyl from back in the day. But I kind of like being able to hear everything. Mm. Yeah, certainly. The original stereo, that's what I grew up listening to, so I was used to that. Mm. But, um, but, but hearing this, and I was very impressed that they, some of the choices they made, like they, they left the drums on the side for most of the tracks, which I thought was, was very respectful. That's right. That's the way they used to pan it, didn't they? Drums one yep. side, guitars mm. the other side, vocals mm. in the middle or something, yeah. Mm. Basically everything on one side, vocals and tambourine on the other. When I was a kid, I used to love listening to one side of those sort of yeah. mixes. It was awesome. It was sort of like your very own, listening to your very own mix of it or something. Right, I don't know, right. bizarre. I go. thought uh, I had a problem with, it was a David Bowie album I bought and it sounded, I heard it on the radio, bought the album, got home, put it on the turntable I'm thinking, this is rubbish. It's not what I heard on the radio. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't until I realised that uh, I was listening, one, it was in mono, and one channel was off. So, oh. so it sounded like it was, you know, coming through both speakers, but it, or headphones, but it, uh, right. only one channel. Yeah, that wasn't good. Not good, not good. But David would not have approved. No, he wouldn't have approved. Now, I, I've got to ask you before we wind this up, the journey with the, like you said before, this was the last hurrah. You're going to, if this didn't work, you were kind of going to give that away. What was it like when the Hooters took off? I wish I could experience that now as a sentient human being. Um, I mean, although we weren't, we weren't kids then. I mean, I was 30 by the time that really happened. But, um, you know, it's such a, I guess it's a classic thing where you're so busy, you're so caught up in the moment that it's really difficult to step back and really enjoy it and say, oh, my God, this is really happening. Um, you know, for us, it was a slow build. We, um, you know, we started up li li literally playing five or six nights a week at biker bars outside of Philadelphia. Um, and, you know, in the beginning, we were really a ska and reggae band. And the, you know, the bikers at said bars didn't know what to make of, of us at first, but they, we won them over. And then the, the, um, the Jamaican Rastas coming out, started coming out to see us. So we had dreadlocked Rastas partying next to, you know, extreme bikers. And it was, it was pretty amazing. And then we, we, one of our first demos, actually our very first demo, somehow landed on WMMR, which was the premier rock station in the city. Um, and they, they put it in regular rotation. So all of a sudden our shows became massive, well, for, for, for the time. And we just sort of rode that wave for a couple of years, put out a couple of singles. Um, we could not get arrested in New York. You know, we try to get uh, the A&R geniuses down uh, to Philadelphia. No, you come to New York. So we'd go from playing to for four or 500 people in a packed club in Philadelphia to 20 people in New York. And the A&R guy says, uh, it wasn't electric. Yes. So, yeah. and then we, then we took a break to do the Cindy album. And the success of that got us a little bit more cachet in the business. And then we, we, but we still weren't getting signed. So we, 
borrowed some money and we did an, an indie album called Amore. We found a, a local studio and spent a month doing it. We sold like 150,000 of them. Wow. Just, just, just regionally. Um, and then finally, we, we got signed. At that point, Rick Chertoff was who you know, produced Cindy, Joan, et cetera. And he really is the third or sixth hooter, depending on how you look at it. Um, uh, always been a, a mentor to, to, to me. Um, he was working for, for Columbia at the time. So we, we finally got signed. We got a deal with Columbia and made Nervous Night. And um, we kind of knew we had something with that we, we and we danced was that was supposed to be the worldwide hit and and that was sort of the obvious first single then when, when we took the album in for mastering we took it into the george marino who was you know the absolute gold standard in mastering engineers rest in peace he asked us what's the single and we said well what do you think and he, he said obviously all you zombies it's the most commercial and we were like what? Wow. <laughs> um, I mean, that was the song. When we were doing four sets a night, that would open our first set just to get it out of the way. And uh, it's funny because then uh, a live recording of that from like 81 ended up as, as our, our second single and got tons of airplay. So it was the little song that wouldn't go away. Um, so, th- you know, that was the first single and that's the song that went number one in Australia. Yeah, I, I read somewhere that you had another name for All You Zombies. Was it? 20 minute song or the 15 minute song or something like that is that right oh i don't i don't know about that no <laughs> no no that's always been all you zombies as far as i know i mean there's the short version which was the um well w- there've been several recorded versions of that but uh, um because on amore the indie record it was like a three and a half minute pop rock reggae song and it was rick chertoff's idea to ex- draw it out and make it into a floydian epic right yeah, yeah, and we kept, and you know, every choice we made, it was, you know, what would Roger think? Um, yeah, and of course, then then when he came to see us at uh, at um, the Town and Country Club in London and said, "Hi, I'm your fan," we knew, we knew that we knew what Roger thinks. But so um, he became a he became a fan of the Hooters, Roger Waters. He did, he did, and you know, we we go see him whenever he's around, and he's always very nice to us. Cool. He was here actually just recently touring Australia. He was, wasn't he? Uh, yeah. Uh, that's a, quite an epic, epic show he's got. I mean, that that album has just had you know legs, legs for centuries, literally. Yeah. Um, but uh, but you know, but uh, getting back to our you know the 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 real breakthrough, you know, again, Live Aid. You know, we played in front of 120,000 people live and a, a billion on TV. Um, people ask me what was it like. I said, I, I don't I didn't know until I watched the video. We were in and out. It was, <laughs> You know, we, by the time we got our legs on stage, we were done. We played two songs, but now it's been an interesting journey. You know, then the U.S. sort of, sort of tapered off, and Germany worked for us, and then later Scandinavia. And thank God for that, because well, Germany, especially, is the the gift that keeps on giving to legacy artists. Oh, we <laughs> good on you, Germany. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If only Australia, I, that's, you know, my bucket list. I really do want to go back there and play again one day, one fine day. I know we have fans there, obviously. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's such a big revival now, the 80s. I mean, the 80s was a monster decade. I mean, probably all, you know, the the, the record company or record selling probably started to wind up in the mid-90s. But that mid-80s to mid-90s, mm. if you got a hit record, you sold a lot of records. And and your songs are still played on the radio and by cover bands. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, what songs from 
basically 2000 on, our cover band is going to be playing in 20 years. That's a good point. Yeah, I can't think of many. Yeah, you know, they'll, be I mean, do, if, they'll be doing. Yeah. They'll be doing. Don't stop believing. I mean, that, the, the industry has changed, and now I think it's gone back to. Well, it's all cyclical anyway, but I, yeah. it's gone back to a point where if you want to be a musician, you've got to do it because you love it, because you're not going to make any money. That's for sure. That's yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, my, I keep reminding my son about that, but he's determined. Oh, okay. So, how many kids have you got? I've got three, and they. Well, we know one's <clears throat> obviously wants to be a musician. What about the other two? Um, the oldest one is a writer. She's a journalist in New York, oh. uh, wor- working for a very for a, a Hearst magazine. Yep. Um, my son is the middle one, and my youngest is seventeen in high school here. And we'll see. She she loves animals, although she has recently expressed interest in recording a a '90s style rock song. It's in the I blood. Would, it's which yeah. I would love because she, because she's I I I know she, I hope she's gone out now, <laughs> but yeah. she really has it. She has this voice. She has a like really special thing going on, and I'd really love to work work with that. I was going to say, how would devastated would you be if she came home one day and said, "Hey, I've got I, I, I'm recording a song. I found this really awesome producer." <laughs> yeah, that's oh, right. I'd, I'd love that. Are you kidding me? I yeah. would love that. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean. I mean, most of my I have most of my friends here who are legacy musicians like myself. They all have grown grown children who are pursuing music, and they're all doing it completely independently of their parents. They their parents don't know what they're doing, and um, you know, there's some there's great merit to that. I'm glad that my kids trust me and and listen to me, but I'm also glad that they know when to take a step away and and really do their own thing. It's funny because we're all dads, and um, I know Robbo, your eldest boy. He's uh, he does it. Is it your eldest who does voiceovers? Uh, my second eldest, yeah, my twelve-year-old. He does voiceovers. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, well, his mum. <laughs> his mum's a voiceover artist herself, so he sort of had a step into the industry. But um, they but both it, did. Yeah. My fourteen-year-old and my twelve-year-old did for many years. The fourteen-year-old sort of got to that stage where his voice broke, and he was sort of sounding like every other guy. On yeah. the block, and so the work dropped off. But um, the twelve-year-old's still getting those, you know, young teenager, she, hip and cool. Are you reads. giving? Are you giving him giving him the Michael Jackson hormones to keep things where they are? <laughs> no, <laughs> isn't that called the castrati? <laughs> they, they call it. They call it counter tenor now. Oh, is that right? Counter tenor. That is actually a thing. With it's um. I always thought that a countertenor was just a guy who could hit like a high D or high E, but it's in fact they're, they're mostly actually baritones with a really great falsetto. And those are the guys who sing what were typically castrati parts in opera. Don't ask me how I know that, but... Well, how did they do that? Um, it's, they do it in falsetto. I, it's, I was rooting around. I, I did this festival in Germany a couple of years ago uh, where they play Handel and they invite a rock musician in to do five of my songs with, with an orchestra and a band. And I said, I'll only do it if I can play some Handel. And... Okay, so they sent me a, a piece to, to learn on guitar, which was a struggle because my reading is pitiful at best. And then the conductor said, how would you feel about singing an aria? And I'm like, bring it on. Mm-hmm. So, he, <laughs> so he, he sent me the, the piece. So I went on YouTube to hear some examples of it. And the first one was this guy, this very manly man, and he opens up his mouth and it's like, Ombra, my fool. Wow! Whoa! And it's like, man, you got to be, you got to be 
confident of your masculinity to be able to stand up in front of an audience and sing like that. Didn't do Jimmy Somerville any harm. Mm. Oh, that's true. Well, yeah. he made he certainly made a thing out of it, and I have great yeah. respect for that. Yeah, yeah. But I did hear a recording of the last Castrati. There was one that actually did end up being recorded. It's that's probably on right. YouTube it, somewhere. There's a film about him on Netflix. I forget his name, but yeah, he was he was uh, he was quite the man. And apparently, um, uh, they cut him after the inches of manhood had had uh, had arrived. So he was actually. Able active. to function. Yes. As he was very yeah. active from what I gather. Yeah. Extremely active, in fact. Extre- he was a rock star. <laughs> he was. <laughs> Gonad the Barbarian. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, we should let you get on with your day in Sweden. Um, yeah. And you're enjoy night, the weather. Uh, thank you. It's, it's, it's cooled off, actually. We're getting more to typical... May now. This May has been insane. It's been like in the in you know well into the twenties, and I think it's hit, even hit thirty. Wow. Yeah, it's been warm. I've got friends who live well, apart from Robert, who you've met. Um, I've got a family that actually moved here where I live, which is down the coast out of Melbourne. And um, the the father and the two kids came here and spent uh, three months living down here and put the kids in school. That's how we met. Um, ah. It was just so they'd get their English up to speed. And, and he, he knew Australia, but why he picked here, I'm still a bit... Still yeah. haven't quite kind of worked that out. But anyway, it, it was great. So we've uh, remained in contact, and these kids are pretty well the same age as mine. So oh. the plan is we'll head to Sweden in the next six to eight months and well, do that on the way through before we go to the UK to see my ever-aging family. Well, drop us a line when you do. I shall, definitely. You can drink some really expensive beer. Nice. Is there anyone you've worked with that you've gone, wow, that was fun, or, or you've learnt something new from or whatever? Like, is there, is, do you, I guess the question is, is there a session that you remember that you've just gone, wow, that was, you know, one of my favourites and, and why? I, you know, I get that out of everything. Yeah, right. Uh, I have to. I, I have to fall in love with the artist in, 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 on some level. Uh, one artist in particular was Amanda Marshall. This was after her first album, which was which was huge. Uh, her A and R person reached out to me, and I was in S- Sweden for the summer, and said, "When you coming back? Would you work with her?" And I was, I don't know why I was a little bit hesitant, but she, she kept on me, and I finally said, "Okay." She said, "I guarantee you're going to love her." She hadn't written much on the first album, but she she's really got a lot of, lot of ideas. So I was like, "Okay," and we just clicked immediately. And I had a really long, productive writing relationship. I, I, I think I wrote 11 of the 12 songs on her second album and ended up producing the singles. And she was ju- just, I mean, her, her voice was devastating. And the last vocal we recorded on that album was um, a song called I Didn't, If I Didn't Have You. And it was, a, it was a rescue attempt because we had this track that we had cut and the song just wasn't really making it. So at 10 o'clock at night, we said, Let's see what we can come up with. And we worked all night tossing around ideas. And finally, at around 7 in the morning, we found the chorus, wrote the verses, started recording her vocal at like 9 in the morning after having been up all night. And at the time, I was demoing the Browner VM1. And when we finished recording her vocal, I wept because I said, this is the best vocal I'm ever going to record. And it cost me $4,000 because I had to keep the mic after that. (laughs) 
one that just occurred to me. A, a quick question. Um, talking to Ivor Davies, and, and I, AP will probably know this story too. Um, there was a, an Australian band called Ice House, and Ivor Davies was the the lead singer and songwriter for the sure. band. And um, he he talked about a song that they did called Electric Blue, which he worked on with John uh, Oates. Uh, John Oates, yeah, yeah. from from it's funny, Paul I, I, and Oates. A friend of mine uh, directed the video, and another friend of mine uh, was in the video. Okay, oh, well, there, there you go. go. So the, the interesting thing was, it's like one of their, or if not their biggest hit, I'm not sure whether it was their biggest, but it was very close to being their biggest. But Ivor Davies talks about writing it um, here in Sydney, in, in his little flat in Newtown, um, with John sitting around a piano one night. And, and the final thing John said to him is he was, they hadn't finished the song. And as John was leaving, he said, look, you've got to release that song because if you don't, Hall & Oates will. And <laughs> Ivor took it to the band and, you know, said, well, what do we do? And they all went, okay, well, you know, let's, let's finish it off and, and release it. And it made me think, I often wonder what John Oates <laughs> thought when he saw yeah. how much of a big hit it became. And I guess the question out of that for you is, if, is there any songs that you've worked on that you thought, shit, I wish I had kept that for myself? No. Um, no? Basically, no, not really. I mean, y- you know, people have asked me that about one of us a bunch, but... Mm. Um, you know, when I wrote that song, I actually sang it in, in a, a voice. I was trying to sound like, like uh, Brad Roberts from the Crash Test Dummies because that's the voice I heard in my head. Yeah. I love that voice. <laughs> yeah, it's in great. Fact, I'll, that voice. Yeah. I'll send you my, my demo of that, which is, which is really kind of funny. But um, I sang it in that voice and I brought it into our session with Joan the next day. We were writing her album at the time and... Um, we took a break in the afternoon and I said, hey, guys, I got to play you this wacky song I wrote last night. And um, I, I really didn't think that the song was going to have any life outside of being a song that I knew had stumbled on some basic truth that I hadn't known I knew until then. And um, the, 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 uh, the track finished and then Rick Chertoff looked up and he said, Joan, do you think you could sing that? Which never would have occurred to me. And the way he asked it was brilliant because if he had said, would you like to sing that? She probably would have said, no, that's not my kind of song at all. But she said, I can sing the phone book, write out the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we qu- quickly recorded a guitar and vocal and we just, we knew that that voice and that song were, were meant to be together. Mm. Um, I, you know, the songs I've written for other people are, they're all far better singers than, than I am. And I'd rather ha- hear the, their voices singing them. <laughs> than me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of songs that I've written and recorded that I wish the world would hear. I think I've, some of my best work will, will never be heard. You know, I've got like 3,000 plays on Spotify with them. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'd love to hear that demo. That'd be cool. Oh, I can send you that. Yeah. Actually, I'll send you the Spotify link to my first solo album, The Optimist. And 30 seconds after the end of the title track, which is the last track, you get to hear my demo. Oh, ah, there you go. Oh, and no. just for added value, if you act now... I, I actually recorded the song with Brad Roberts from the Crash Test Dummies. Did you really? Is that right? Wow. I, I did. I have, I have a recording that which is absolutely epic. First, I wanted to put him on, on my demo, and then he, which he did, and then he said, uh, do you think I could just play acoustic guitar and sing it? And I'm like, come on. And his vocal was devastating. I mean, to me... You know, if Joan is the the young girl filled with wonderment singing about the, you know, the mysteries of the universe, Brad Roberts is the voice of God. Yeah. Do you know what? If there's a song of the 90s that comes to mind every time I think of it, it's Afternoons and Coffee Spoons. God, I love that song. I don't know why. There's just something about it. It's such a good song. That was when we were both living in Perth. It was. I don't even know that. No? You'd know it if you heard it. 
Yeah. Crash test, we crash actually, test dummies. We, oh, we, okay, okay, yeah. We played that, that? it was like, because the radio station that, that Robbo and I worked at in Perth, was we were playing all sorts of really cool stuff Yeah. yeah uh, that no one else actually touched, and that was one of them. Were you, you weren't living in Perth when we did that interview, were you? No, I was actually living in Adelaide and then flew across to, um, ah. to Melbourne for the interview. Because I remember I interviewed with a very nice young man from Perth, but that, I think that was in Melbourne, actually. Yeah, that's, I, was, I think we all flew in for that. Yeah, you know, considering that we were there for four days, did not sleep at all, uh, how many people we met, I, I'm amazed at how much I remember. God knows what that shirt was I was wearing in the photograph, but anyway, uh, we should put that up in the oh, show notes just for the hell of it. Uh, you we know will. What? We all we all get the '80s pass for that stuff. I mean, I, no, I no. look at my hair. I, I look at my hair. What I was wearing. God, what was I thinking? I, actually, I know what I was thinking. I was thinking, why do I have my hair like this, and why am I dressed like this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I knew I, better. I was thinking, wow, this looks really good. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I was looking at my hair in that photograph. It looks like I'm wearing a Busby. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I've, I've shown up next to Bono on, on, on a mullet, you know, Epic Mullets website. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Wow. He had that classic mullet, didn't he? That oh, was that was a, a shocker. Clean, yeah. Just the ultimate clean. shocker. Mm. That was a Frankston. We would call that a Frankston. Yeah. <laughs> Frankston. Frankston. <laughs> in Sweden. I know where you're talking about. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about, but that's fine. In Sweden, in Sweden, they call it a hockey frill. A hockey frill. <laughs> hockey frill. It sounds better than mullet. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds pretty romantic, doesn't it? It sounds cool. Well, I want one. Well, everything, is, everything in Swedish is very accurate and descriptive. It literally means a hockey Haircut. Really? Um, the, the, there you go. Yeah. Like the Swedish word for brazier is beahoa, which is an abbreviation for brestholare, a breast holder. Right. In Aussie slang, there. it's an over the shoulder boulder holder. And speaking of there such you things, go. you know, you do know what hooters <laughs> means in Australia, don't you? <laughs> yes. Um, you can, I assume it means breast. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, you know, this brings us to a whole other subject, which is the, the name of the band. Hooters did not mean breasts when we named the band the Hooters. Okay. Because that that's the obvious question that I'd sort of yeah. stayed away from. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I mean, for, uh, um, you know, the melodica, the, the signature sound that begins yeah, yeah. and we danced. Mm. Um, we got that early on because uh, Augustus Pablo, a reggae legend, was was using it, and we thought it would sound cool on some of our stuff. And I had a friend who had one, so we borrowed it and brought it into our very first demo session. And the engineer said, "Give me a level on that hooter." <laughs> so Rob and, I, Rob and I looked at each other and said, "Yeah, this is a hooter." And we still hadn't named the band, and we wanted a a plural noun that wasn't a household object, so that everyone in the band could say, "I am a." Not a tree or a chair or a frog, but a, a, a beetle, a rolling stone, a whaler. So it took 24 hours before one of us realized, hey, it's, it, we're the Hooters. <laughs> nice. And, then, and it was six months later that, that um, Steve Martin did that bit on Saturday Night Live where he gets up and he says, I believe that da-da-da and da-da-da and the sanctity of marriage and that all children should be in small animals. And furthermore, I believe that a woman's breast should never be known as tits, jugs, giant Winnebago's, party bags, on and on. <laughs> From now on, they shall only be known as hooters. <laughs> Whoops. Oh, dear. <laughs> so we, we thought it was funny at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just yeah. a few boobs making music. 
That's us. That's, that's still us. This is my Russian keyboard player, Mr. Nibelov. <laughs> and, and, and our drummer, Kachikaka. <laughs> Uh, interview can't get any better than that now. That's the quote of the day. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's, it's Ivan Ivan Kachakakov. Yeah, and, no, and Nora Nipolov, his, his wife. Oh, that's good. His yes, his, his wife. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Oh, that uh, was worthwhile. Beautiful. I, I hope so. That was that was a very delightful way to spend part of an afternoon before I go back to the A minor violin sonata on mandolin. Are you recording this afternoon? Um, no, no, I'm I'm learning it. I, I ah, practice this thing. For this. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, several hours a day for no good reason. I thought about recording it, but Chris Thiele already did like the definitive version. I'm never going to play it as well as him. But I just got myself from this music store. They've had two beautiful vintage uh, Fender electric mandolins hanging on the wall, and I've always sort of looked askance at them because they only have four strings. But I pulled one of them off the wall one day and plugged it into an amp on Stun and started playing the uh, presto movement of the G minor, and I realized, wow, I'm Ingve Monstein on the mandolin. So I'm actually going to record these all, like, hard rock style, just because... You can. Because I can. Because you can. Yes. Yep. Why not? Absolutely. Got to keep the challenges, got to keep it fresh, you know, even if keeping it fresh means going back a few centuries. Indeed. Nothing wrong with that. Well, there you go. That's Eric Bazilian from Stockholm with his uh, studio downstairs and uh, a nice little setup too. Do you know what I love about that? I love the language. I love the, I love the conversation that went along the lines of uh, not, Joan, can you sing that? But do you think you can sing that? I think that's great. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> of course I can fucking sing it. Give me, give me the backing track. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's go. Is that producer speak? That was to, producer like, speak. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. That was uh, when he was trying to get her to sing it. He didn't say, will, he didn't ask her, will you sing it? He said, can you sing it? Yeah. <laughs> her answer was basically, of course I can. But I, I like the fact he's, so what, what, a, what a guy who does everything. He plays everything, like guitar, saxophone, keyboards. He sings. He's a songwriter. He can produce, engineer, and he's a gear nut. What a package. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Total what a nut. package. Now, did you ever used to go and see... Oh, you're probably a bit young, actually, George. But they were—they come from your town, didn't they? I do have to say, I was a bit young to really, really kind of follow the band. But they—they they were, yeah, they were hitting it when I was in grade school, I believe. And I—I I remember they played at like this big show locally in a nearby town, and it was a big deal. And everybody, everybody made a big deal out of it. And I never, I never did see them live, actually. But uh, yeah, they were the you know local boys make make big, uh, make it to the big time at the, at that time, you know. Yeah. Well, you had only been ten or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they were. They were. They, it was their number one hit in Australia. So, um, and the two two shows here, the one I saw in Melbourne was sensational. They went off, lifted the roof. That's fantastic. Anyway, that's our show for this week. In a couple of weeks, we'll be back, and um, we're going to talk about something we've been mulling around for a while, and that's delivery systems, how you get your files to your client. What's your preferred way of doing it? Um, we'll have a chat about that on our next show. In the meantime, we've got a bit of an exclusive to play us out <laughs> this week, though. <laughs> we do have an exclusive. It came to us via FedEx. Thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is a, a version that uh, Eric has kindly said we can play on the show. Uh, it's a version of one of us 
the Joan Osborne hit. Uh, but this is Brad Roberts, who's the singer of a band called Crash Test Dummies. He's certainly got a unique voice. And um, this was recorded as a demo. And I, I, it's funny, I've played this in my studio using proper monitors. And if you, by chance, can play this through a decent set of monitors in your studio, do it, because it sounds unbelievable. Uh, this is One of Us with Eric Bazilian and Brad Roberts. If God had a name, what would it be and would you call it to his face? If you were faced with him in all his glory What would you ask if you had just one question? Yeah, yeah, God is great Yeah, yeah, God is good Yeah, 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 yeah God was one of us Just a slob like one of us Just a stranger on the bus Trying to make his way home And if God had a face What would it look like and would you want to see If seeing meant that you would have to believe In things like heaven and in Jesus and the saints And all the prophets Yeah, yeah, God is great Yeah, yeah, God is good Yeah, 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 yeah God was one of us Just a slob like one of us Just a stranger on the bus Trying to make his way There's a silver lining in the sky Bonsoir, old thing, cheerio, chin-chin Na-poo-toodaloo, good 
Bye.